May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we got off to a good start today. I was celebrating the, uh, the first service, and I had set the book up for right two. So we got to the Gloria, and everybody was giving me a blank stare. So we shifted quickly. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, I want to talk to you this morning about this gospel reading, at least four verses of the gospel reading, 8 through 11. Um, the big idea is the Holy Spirit works through us to spread the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit works through us to spread the kingdom of God. Um, I've never preached on this text before, and it's one of those things where you've, you've read it over and over and over, maybe in passing, but never really looked at it before, and I find it to be very interesting. It's, uh, it's part of the Last Supper. Um, supper's over. The feet have been washed. Anxiety and mystery is growing among the disciples. They don't quite know what's going to happen. Jesus talks about leaving, and he talks about this thing called the Comforter coming. Uh, he's trying to prepare him, to prepare the disciples for this event. And as you've heard me say many times, all anxiety is the result of uncertainty. When you don't know what's going to happen, you tend to get anxious about it. All right? And so that's where the disciples are at this moment. Now, last week, we talked on Pentecost about the Holy Spirit, the fact that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with you, but in the, after, the, after Pentecost, the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to do certain things, the 10-second rule, and uh, the Holy Spirit will fill you. If the need arises, you can be filled up, kind of like the faucet versus the fire hydrant. It's important to know that the Holy Spirit comes to the church, not to the world. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. Cosmos, when John uses the word world, he uses cosmos. It means um, those who do not know God. Holy Spirit comes to us that we might influence the world, those who do not know Christ. Jesus had a body, and the Holy Spirit has a body, the church. And he wants to glorify Christ uh, and witness to a fallen world. And that turns out to be our task. These are the verses I want to take a look at this morning. Sixteen, eight through 11. And when he comes, he will con convince, interesting word, convince, the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the sin of unbelief. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more, having to do with the identity of Jesus. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It has to do with Satan being judged already. Those three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. He uses the word convince. That word can also be translated convict. It's a legal term. It means bring to light, expose, refute, pronounce the verdict. We're in court with the Holy Spirit. And the world isn't passing judgment on Christians. Christians are really passing 
judgment on the world that do not know the Lord as we witness to Christ. The world cares about crime, which is wrong between man and man. They don't care so much about sin, which is wrong between God and man. So many in the world, they really don't think about God very much. It's an afterthought, if, if it's a thought at all. And you see this reflected in different worldviews. There's a biblical worldview, and then there's this, uh, what I would call a cultural worldview. In a biblical worldview, we take the Bible as being authoritative for our lives. We are informed by Scripture. Uh, we get our sense of right and wrong, God's created order, reality, all comes from the Word of God. A cultural worldview is very uh, fluid. Uh, right and wrong is determined about how does it affect me. If I make out in the end, it's right. If I don't, it's wrong. That kind of thing. Um, God's created order also is part of this. God created the male and female, not whatever you want it to be. Uh, what is a family? A nuclear family is male, or a mom and the dad and the kids. Mom, dad, and the kids. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and the baby carriage. There's an order to that. God's created order. We've kind of gotten away from that in so many ways. And things that would seem easy, we saw a movie the other night called What is a Woman? Anybody see the movie? And uh, Matt Walsh did it, and he goes around to professors, doctors, lawyers, uh, students, um, psychiatrists, counselors, and he's just asking the question, what is a woman? And it was amazing how almost none of them could give him an answer about what is a woman. And uh, this came up with the Supreme Court justice. But they didn't want to give an answer because they didn't want to give the wrong answer. See? Um, because if somebody identifies as a woman, then they're a woman. So at the end of the movie, he goes to his wife and he said, what is a woman? She said, it's an adult human female. What are, you, what are you talking about? It's an adult human female. God made them male and female. But in a very in a different worldview, you have a very different view of that. I often wonder if you went into the Social Security office at the age of 33 and say to the guy, I identify as 72. I want my benefits. How would that go? Would they, because you identify as a 73-year-old, would you have to get benefits? Because if you say you are, then you must be. Or if you're 86 and you go to Wolfie's and say, I want the kids' menu, I identify as six. I don't know how that. The other thing about worldviews is in a biblical worldview, we want to use our gifts and talents that God has given us for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people. How can I be helpful to the people around me? In a cultural worldview, it really is all about me. We see, people see things very differently. It's very kind of self-centered, um, me-centered, rather than um, I'm put on this earth to be of use and of help to the kingdom of God and the people that we're trying to bring into the kingdom of God. So that really plays into what we're talking about this morning. Believers are the witness are witness are the witnesses. The Holy Spirit is the prosecuting and attorney, and the unsaved are the guilty prisoners. The purpose of the indictment is not to condemn, but to bring salvation. It's to open people's eyes to their need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, because the stakes are eternal. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world of unbelief, sometimes even without words. A well-known professional golfer was playing in a tournament with President Gerald Ford, fellow pro Jack Nicholas, and Billy Graham. 
After the round was over, one of the other pros on the tour asked, hey, how was it like, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? The pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he headed for the practice tee. His friend followed, and after the golfer had pounded out his fury on a bucket of golf balls, he asked, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro sighed and said with embarrassment, no, it didn't even mention religion. Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus, or religion, yet the pro stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. It was just the very presence of Billy Graham that this golfer found convicting. Didn't have to say anything. There was something about him that made him feel that way. You know? The law of God convicts people of their sins, but the Holy Spirit exposes the unbelief of a lost world. Unbelief. It's unbelief that condemns the lost sinner. It's not all the other sins. You can clean up your act and you can live a great life. You can do all the right things, but that doesn't reconcile you with God. I always say in funerals, when there's three-man per person demonstration, if you think that your good deeds are going to reconcile you with God, God says all those good deeds that you think are so wonderful fall at the feet of a holy and righteous God as filthy rags. They mean they're worse, they're less than nothing. They're an abomination to him if you think that those good things are going to reconcile you with him. What reconciles you with God is belief in his son Jesus Christ and belief that you're a sinner in need of salvation. So we understand that, we repent, we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and everything changes. But apart from that, we're doomed. We're all familiar with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He who does not believe is condemned already. That's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Unbelief is the greatest sin. But I would say never quit praying for people. You know, you've been knocking on somebody's door forever. Don't quit. Don't quit. You may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. And I pray that your life is like that song that we just sang, right? So I'm doing an audible. That'll be our exit song instead of Amazing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Let's do that one, Take My Life. Do that one just seems to fit more of what we're talking about today. So never quit praying. I always tell people that uh, the most powerful evangelical tool you have is your story. How has God affected your life? And how can you communicate that to other people? This is what it was like before I met Christ. This is what it's like after I met Christ. I'm different. It's all different. And here's what happened. Let me, let me tell you my story. 
So he comes to convict the world of sin. He also convicts the sinner of righteousness, the idea of who is Jesus. The righteousness of Christ, the perfect lamb of God. I've told you that when I was in, on the standing committee, people would come after two years of seminary, and they'd have, a, they'd have to go to the standing committee to go to the third year of seminary. And my question was, who is Jesus? You'd think it would be a pretty easy question for somebody to have been in seminary for two years, not so much. It's very strange to me how odd the answers would be sometimes. Um, but he's saying here, um, don't believe what the world tells you about Jesus. Believe what I'm telling you about Jesus. The leaders back in those days said that Jesus was a criminal, a troublemaker, a rebel, evil, demon-possessed, and they crucified him. And for 36 hours, they were right. But on Sunday morning, all of a sudden, they were wrong. The resurrection, they were wrong. God said, isn't that a beautiful sound? The sound of a baby crying is a beautiful sound, I must say. New life. At the resurrection, God said not guilty. God said he was the savior of the world and king of kings. King of kings. The world says Jesus is a good teacher and a moral model, and he's one among many. Holy Spirit says Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Somebody asked me the other day, um, you know, why did you leave? And, uh, they, in fact, uh, they, they emailed the church, and I called them up, and we had a good conversation. And I said, we left because the two pillars of the faith, the uniqueness of Christ and the authority of Scripture, were kind of blown up by the Episcopal Church, and we couldn't stay anymore. And then I remember when a couple came to see me, oh, it was the Praetors. I remember that. Hi, Bob and Kathy. So they came, and we had a nice conversation. They were kind of checking out the church. And I said, do you have any questions for me? And they said, well, only one. Why did you leave? I said, what did you hear? And they said, you hate gays. And I said, oh, it's worse than that. I said, most people don't know this, but we have a gay detector at the door of the church. And if you're gay and you cross the line, alarm sounds, lights go off, and men come and take you away. And uh, I won't say which one. One of the two said, really? And I said, no, not really, and that's not why we left. We don't hate anybody. It was the uniqueness of Christ and the authority of Scripture. But that meme, that theme kind of spread that we were haters, and it's just not true. It was never true. But they had to say something. You guys are good sports. <laughs> the, Holy the Holy Spirit convicts the law center of judgment, which refers to Jesus' Jesus' judgment of Satan. Satan is defeated. The prince of this world is defeated. He has lost. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. It's like the missionary who came back to a his tent, and he saw this huge snake in the tent. He took out his pistol, and he shot the snake. The snake is mortally wounded, but he's not dead yet, and he's going into this death throw, and he is destroying everything in the tent. He's going to die. He's mortally wounded, but he's really wrecking things. And that's what we see in the world today. 
Satan is mortally wounded, but he's making it. He's having a time. Wherever, wherever God is working and things are moving in the right direction, he comes and he tries to disrupt it. He tries to disrupt it here. He'll disrupt it at the school. Maybe he'll dis- disrupt it in your home or your business or your relationships because the enemy can't stand it when God is acknowledged and real in your life. So for the 85 hundredth time, wherever you see division, isolation, and separation, you see the enemy at work. Think about it. Division, isolation, separation. Do you see that in our life, in our world today? Is it possible to even have a civil discourse about certain topics? No. If you're on the other side, you're the enemy. The enemy and Satan loves that. Where you see peace, clarity, and unity, you see the Holy Spirit at work. So we have to recognize it when we see it and overcome it because we are the light. So Jesus will execute the final sentence on Satan when he returns. Any time would be fine with me. We're in a war, but we know who wins. God has already won. So don't be discouraged or doubtful. Again, the, the, the enemy has a lot of weapons. Discouragement and doubt are two of the biggest that he has. It's it's easy to get discouraged given the circumstances we see around us in, in in the world, in our nation, in our state, in our lives, in our friendships, whatever it might be. It's easy to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God is present, God is active, and God is real. And in the end, the truth will be known and justice will be done. We see, see things that are unfolding in this life and in this world, and we get upset because the truth isn't being told. In the end, the truth will be known and justice will be done. And I know that the world is crazy in so many ways, but God's people need to keep praying for the light to overcome the darkness. And we're the light. So when the sinner is under conviction, he sees the folly and evil of unbelief. That's when you get convicted. You see, I've been going the wrong way. I've got to open my eyes, turn around, and go another way. There's a whole other way of thinking. He's going to confess that he does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ, and he will realize that he's under condemnation because he belongs to the world and the devil. Ephesians puts it like this. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who was rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places. Christ Jesus. When we were lost, he came and found us. There can be no conversion apart from conviction, and there can be no conviction apart from the Holy Spirit using the word of God and the witness of his children. That would be you and me. We're the ones that are going to be intervening in people's lives as we move through our lives. So witnessing is a great privilege and a great responsibility, and I pray that God will lead us to the right people, give us the right words so that 
Christ might be glorified and people come to faith. But remember, you'll never win anyone to Christ by your words alone. Your words have life-changing power only as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working through you. But sometimes we get tired of doing the right thing. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a little life-saving station. The building was primitive and there was just one boat. But the members of the life-saving station were committed and kept a constant watch over the sea. When a ship went down, they unselfishly went out day or night to save the lost. But so many lives were saved by that station, it became famous. Consequently, many people wanted to be associated with the station, give their time, talent, and money to support that important work. New boats were bought, new crews were recruited, a formal training session was offered. As the membership in the life-saving station grew, some of the members became unhappy that the building was so primitive, that the equipment was so outdated. They wanted a better place that welcomed the survivors pulled from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged and newly decorated building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. They met regularly, and when they did, it was apparent how much they loved one another. They greeted each other, hugged each other, and shared with one another the events that had been going on in their lives. But fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this for them. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought into the life-saving station boatloads of cold, wet, dirty, sick, and half-drowned people. Some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin, and some could speak English well, and some could hardly speak it at all. Some were first-class cabin passengers of the ship, and some were the deckhands. The beautiful meeting place became a place of chaos. Plush carpets got dirty. Some of the exquisite furniture got scratched. So the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the, the, the house where the victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a rift in the membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities for they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal fellowship of the members. Other members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all those various kinds of people who would be shipwrecked, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And you know what? That's what they did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a place to meet regularly for fellowship, for committee meetings, and for special training sessions about their mission, but few went out to the drowning people. The drowning people were no longer welcomed in that new life-saving station, so another life-saving station was founded further down the coast. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of adequate meeting places with ample parking and plush carpeting. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Please. Do not let that become Christ the King.